Welcome to Get Better at Garbage, the official podcast of Recycle Smart, Canada's fastest growing recycling technology company. In every episode, we talk tech, innovation, and inside secrets with interesting people doing interesting things from around the world. All right, welcome to this episode of Get Better at Garbage. And today we are going across the Atlantic Ocean, uh, back to somewhere where we've been quite a bit this season on Get Better at Garbage, which is into the UK and actually going today to Scotland, where we're talking today with Joe Sadler, Discovery Fellow at the University of Edinburgh. And we actually came across a super interesting article on The Guardian about how uh, Joe's research is basically showing a way that we can use waste plastic to make something that I think a lot of people would not even think of. So Joe, welcome to the show today. Hi, it's great to be here. So before we dive into your research and the work that you've been doing, uh, maybe just give us a little bit of background about where you went to school and your previous experience before you got into the exciting world of what to do with all this plastic waste. Sure. So I'm, I'm actually from England originally. I'm from a town called Oxford, which is just near London. Um, and I went off to a University of Bristol to study chemistry because I was really fascinated about you know, what, what's the world made of really and how to really visualize it at kind of molecular level and then how can we manipulate those chemicals to do really useful and interesting things. Um, so I had a fantastic time in Bristol. And by the end of that, I was really keen to sort of further my knowledge and um, understand more about how we can actually use science to improve the sustainability um, of, of the future. Um, so I went off to do a PhD, and um, this was actually an industrial PhD with um, GlaxoSmithKline in collaboration with the University of Strathclyde. Um, and this was a PhD where I was really using enzymes, which are basically biological catalysts, to replace um, traditional chemical methods to do particular chemical reactions in a more sustainable way. And so this really introduced me to this field of biotechnology, which I didn't know much about before as a chemist. Um, but I was just kind of fascinated and really drawn in by it. So I went off to do a couple of postdocs following that, that PhD, um, one at the Manchester Institute of Biotechnology, um, when I was working more on this use of enzymes to do chemistry, and then a second at the University of St Andrews. And it was at that point which I, um, I, I was awarded this discovery fellowship to come over to Edinburgh and, and draw on all of this experience now to start tackling the plastic waste crisis. Interesting. And uh, yes, I have heard of Oxford. There's quite a famous school there. So that's, uh, that's interesting. I think that um, a lot of people when they start out on their PhD, where they end up is very different. So I don't know if that is true for you, where you think you're going to go is, is very different from the where you set out at the beginning. Um, so we're talking today about vanillin. Is, is that right? Am I saying vanillin right? Yeah, that's right. Vanillin. Okay. Yeah. And so maybe just explain what is vanillin, because to be honest, I've never heard, of, I've obviously heard of vanilla, but vanillin was something new. So what is vanillin and how is it used today in uh, the supply chain? So vanillin is the, it's the main component. So it's the main sort of molecular component of that, that thing vanilla, which we're all really familiar with. So vanilla, as we know, is a flavoring, which you might put in your cooking or it's used in perfumes and fragrances. And um, the vanilla flavoring is actually about 95 to 98% of this molecule called vanillin. Um, and then the other few percent is just made up of a, a few other similar molecules, which really differentiates synthetic vanillin from natural vanillin. And we can talk about more, more about that in just a second. Um, 
so because of this lovely flavor and taste which we all associate with vanilla um, it's used really extensively throughout many many consumer applications i guess the most common one is is and the most famous one is in food and flavorings um so of, of course we put this in our cakes and ice cream and etc however it's also got loads of really useful properties as a molecule um, and so actually increasingly it's being used for other applications as well. So as a, a bulking agent, for example, in pharmaceuticals, it's used uh, as an antimicrobial agent in, in some foods as an additive. Um, it's also used in agrochemicals and various things. So it's actually got an absolutely huge demand of about 15 to 20,000 tonnes every single year. Um, and, and it's really quite ubiquitous across, across society. So you mentioned that earlier, let's explore a little bit more. So I think when a lot of us think of vanilla, we think of the vanilla bean and this kind of natural vanilla that is growing, I guess, on a tree. I'm not even actually sure. But in reality, a lot of it is not actually natural. Do you want to explain kind of how that process kind of works? We make vanilla out of other things, it sounds like. That's right. Yeah. So because that demand is just so high, it, it physically cannot be met by what we call natural vanilla alone. So natural vanilla is anything that's you know really come from the plant. So vanilla is actually a member of the orchid family and it's native to places like Madagascar um, some parts of Mexico. And so quite tropical climates. Um, but the vanilla market is, is quite a volatile market. There's a few issues with um, sort of su supplying that demand. And as such, um, the, the supply from natural vanilla makes up about less than 1% of the, of the demand. And so the rest really has to come from synthetic um, processes. Now, there are a few different synthetic processes that occur. Um, still the most common is using petrochemical feedstocks. Um, so basically fossil fuel derived small molecules, which we can use um, as a feedstock for traditional organic chemistry um, and make vanillin in the way that we make lots of other molecules like pharmaceuticals and, and other important molecules. And these processes are quite well established. Um, there are about five companies which are doing this on quite substantial scale worldwide, um, Solvay being one of the, the key players. Um, and, that, and that's fine, it does, it does meet the demand, but obviously we're relying on petrochemical feedstocks, which are finite. Um, and also some of these processes operate under reasonably harsh conditions and actually aren't perhaps as sustainable as they could be moving forwards. Um, a really exciting avenue actually is the use of lignin as a feedstock to make vanillin. So lignin is a byproduct from sort of waste biomass. So for example, the paper milling industry and the pulping industries, it, it leaves behind this kind of fibrous residue at the end of the process. And that's, that's very rich in this thing that's called lignin. And actually it's been shown that you can obtain vanillin reasonably efficiently from a lignin feedstock, which is obviously a, a renewable resource rather than a finite petrochemical resource. So there's a few companies also looking at that as a, a more scalable and sustainable alternative to meet this huge demand. So it, right now it's made from essentially, it's a synthetic product. And so does the price also go up and down? Let's say the price of oil overall type thing, like does vanillin get more expensive when, when oil prices go up and cheaper? when oil prices go down? <laughs> That's an interesting question. I, I don't know for sure whether it's dependent upon the oil prices as such. I mean, it's compared to many other industrial chemicals, it's it's a lower volume chemical than you know many other things. Um, it may still be um, somewhat dependent on it. Having said that, the price of natural vanillin is extremely um, changeable and it, it really depends on you know, what harvest was that year, whether you know the, the, the beans were picked early and they've all gone off or whether there's been 
theft of the beans, which is also, it's also quite a big problem. So the price of natural vanillin really does fluctuate a lot. Um, and I think in comparison to that, the price of synthetic vanillin is, is more stable. Um, but I do think as we are running out of fossil fuels, it, it might well go up. <laughs> Right. Yeah. The scarcity, obviously, making the, the price increase. So let's talk a bit about the work that, that you've been doing, which is using essentially waste plastic as a feedstock instead of you know virgin petrochemical uh, feedstock. And so can you tell our listeners a bit about that? How does this work? Are you just putting it into a big vat and uh, it just does its magic or you're introducing some kind of special process? Um, yeah, so we really did have to design this system so it would work. It doesn't just happen on its own, unfortunately. Um, so we actually do a two-step process. And the first is to use um, a tool which had already been discovered by scientists. So we use an enzyme, which is, as I said, a biological catalyst. Um, and these basically, you can think of them as renewable and biodegradable catalysts that can be used much like other catalysts um, that we know already. Um, so we basically use one of these catalysts to break down the plastic into its constituent parts. And we call these little part building blocks monomers. Um, so actually the plastic that we used, PET or polyethylene terephthalate, that actually breaks down into two um, monomer components. And what we did was we broke it down and then we took one of those components, which is called terephthalate, but it doesn't really matter what it's called, um, and then fed that into some engineered microbes. And those microbes have actually been engineered so that they contain some other different enzymes which are able to take that monomer and do some chemistry on it until it makes vanillin. And at that point, um, the, 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 the microbes want to get rid of the vanillin because it's actually slightly toxic to the cells. So they basically export it out and back into the media. And at that point, you can, you can collect it for, for use. Um, so I should say that you know, this is a very early stage study. It's, it's very much proof of concept. We've got a lot of work to do before this is um, going to be scalable and actually able to use in real life. And one thing we really want to do is to be able to integrate those two, those two steps more efficiently um, so that we can actually think about breaking down the plastic and doing this microbial upcycling all in the same vat. Gotcha. So... Um... Is this just PET or is this just where you guys started because there's lots of PET available? Or is there something specific about PET that makes it uh, a better feedstock? There is something specific about PET. So all different plastics are made up of different sort of constituent parts, if you like. They've all got slightly different building blocks. And so when you break them down, you get different sort of, you get those different building blocks back. Um, and it just so happens that one of the building blocks from PET is chemically not too different from vanillin. So it's quite easy to convert it into vanillin. Whereas something like um, polyethylene in you know, a plastic bag material, um, that would actually be a lot harder to convert into vanillin because the building block is chemically very, very different from the structure of the vanillin molecule. Um, so we did choose um, PET for a specific reason. Um, but there's also a huge amount of it uh, you know, as a waste product. So it was, it was an attractive target from that point of view as well. Right. Yeah. It's, there's lots of it out there and it's also, as you mentioned, it's, it's something that has some specific uh, properties. It's been very interesting talking to a lot of uh, plastic recycling. I want to say people, but I guess companies and organizations, and it seems like we're really moving away from this. Can we shred this up and make it into, you know, plastic benches or to let's get back to the molecular level. Cause that's really the only way we're going to solve this, I want to say plastic pollution problem, but we've kind of got ourselves into a bit of a pickle where we've got so much plastic, we need to figure out a way to reduce it, kind of reverse engineer it back to 
what we started with. And is this something that can be done indefinitely or is there like do the molecular chains break down over time or? So the plastic molecular chains do naturally break down over time and this is accelerated by some environmental conditions such as seawater can accelerate this process and so can UV light, so sunlight basically. Um, but actually it's, it's very, very slow and it's much more efficient to collect up, you know, post-consumer PET um, such as we do at the moment, you know, you put your plastics into your recycling box. It's much more efficient to collect it up directly after the user has used it so that it's at a, in a more sort of well understood state rather than sort of partially degraded. And then I think to process that all, all at once into a, a particular process, for example, to make vanillin or some other um, high value product than just relying on um, sort of natural degradation processes. Right, you're basically kind of creating the optimum condition with the right enzymes and I'm assuming temperature and whatever else you need to really make this stuff go. That's right, yeah. And then the other thing is that you know, this way we are really actually getting some value back from this waste product, whereas in other, other situations, the value of these materials really, really plummets throughout its life cycle, um, which kind of is crazy if you think about it because we're taking finite resources, we're using them once and then they're worthless. Um, and the whole idea of this work is to take a finite resource, use it for a really useful thing. And plastic is a really useful material, but then, you know, have processes in place, which we can then take that post-consumer material and then derive even more value from it in the future. So let's talk a little bit about the current uh, state of the research and the work you're doing. So obviously very early days, but um, is the really the challenge now to scale the production process? Because I think we've talk to some other, you know, organizations working in the plastic recycling and they get, you know, a test site going or a, you know, a test plant, but then the scalability is really where they run into some, some big challenges. Yes, that's certainly um, the next thing we want to do. I think before we scale it, we really need to do some further engineering on these microbes to make them much more efficient at this upcycling process. The conditions that we've been using so far are, are really not amenable to scale up. So we have to use a lot of cells, for example, to get high conversions. And that's that has a few issues, um, both with scale up and product isolation. So we've got a lot of ideas for further sort of engineering these microbes so they're really good at they're really good at upcycling this plastic um, using as fewer cells and as a, under as mild conditions as, as possible. Because of course, it's really important to us that the process in itself is as sustainable as possible. So we want these to operate at ambient temperatures, for example, using as fewer reagents as we possibly can. Got it, okay. So a little more tweaking on the actual process before you start to scale, because you want to make sure that the process you're going to scale up is as close exactly. to optimum as possible. That, that's yeah. right. Oh, that yeah, makes total sure. sense. Yeah. <laughs> so so this is really interesting when you start to think of, you know, how many different uh, types of plastic we have, which is quite a few, but also, you know, these, these molecules are really building blocks for anything. And so what are some other opportunities? I'm sure you've probably already thought of these. You're, you're obviously using enzymes right now to make vanillin, but there must be other, you know, things that we could take waste plastic and make as well, I'm assuming, because these molecules are fairly flexible and, and versatile. Yeah, there's, I think this is, this is only the beginning. And I think what's really exciting now is people are beginning to actually view plastic as a resource and a, and a feedstock rather than just a problem and a waste product. So I, I really feel we're, we're just at the start of a really exciting young field. Um, and as you say, I think the possibilities really are quite, quite open-ended. Um, actually, if you think about the 
the, the makeup of plastic, plastic is basically made of carbon, sometimes oxygen, sometimes nitrogen and hydrogen. So these are basically the four key elements of life. So if we can find a way to reliably use these plastic or plastic degradation products as a feedstock for sort of microbial growth, um, we know that we can engineer microbes to make lots and lots of very valuable products. If we can use these plastic things as a as a feedstock and not have to rely on glucose, then arguably, you know, the sky's the limit in terms of what, what you might be able to think about making. Um, I think we're a few years away from that particular place because we've still got to work out how to efficiently break down these materials into molecules which microbes can use. Um, but in my view, that's you know that's where we need to be heading with this field. Um, and as I say, I think it's really exciting. I think we've, we've just really demonstrated that this could be possible. And now we can go ahead and really start to intensify these processes and demonstrate them on scale. Yeah, and the interesting thing is, like you said before, is the scalability is also related to you know, how much energy does it take? Is it a process you know, that requires a lot of heat or power? But in this case, if you kind of get the process tuned, it should almost run on its own. I mean, obviously there's probably some environmental factors that need to be kind of tuned to make the enzymes really work most efficiently. But unlike a lot of other recycling processes which either require a lot of energy or equipment, um, this could become kind of like a almost nature does it for you as long as you have the Yeah, absolutely. And in like fact, the process that we bread. developed. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. The process that we developed actually works at room temperature. So there was no heating involved at all um, in the in the monomer to vanillin um, part of the process. So compared to many chemical processes, which might operate at elevated temperatures, you know, this is a really um, mild set of conditions and it's in water as well, rather than organic solvents. Right, so making it as simple as possible. I think we saw this with, with COVID vaccines, how you could develop a really good vaccine, but if it had to be kept at you know, like negative 40 degrees, that really limited you know, how much uptake you're gonna get because creating these conditions to transport and distribute it were kind of a limiting factor. So even though it might be a great vaccine or in this case, a great process, if it's not easy to replicate for you know a large percentage of the population, then it's never gonna take off. Yeah, I think it's got to be something which is, as you say, scalable, and it's got to be compatible with existing bioprocessing technology that already exists in you know in in companies. Um, so yeah, it needs to be designed with that in mind. Um, but we'll get there. And I said this is just the start of a, a very young field, so I think um, there's there's huge potential for us to achieve that. One last question before we get to our final question is from the companies that are producing plastics at the at the polymer level, is there an opportunity to make plastic more, you know, enzyme friendly um, through the way that they make it? Or is this something that's going to kind of remain separate? Or do you think eventually it'll be where the companies that are making that, you know, virgin resin actually are thinking about, hey, if we, you know, do this to this plastic, then we'll have a better chance at the other end of, of being able to use an enzyme on it. Yeah, I think that's a really great question. There is a lot of interest in now beginning to think about designing plastics for end of life and for upcycling or recycling. Um, and that's certainly, I think, the, another direction in which we're headed. And, and you might have heard a lot about bioplastics or biodegradable plastics. So this is a really good example because they are inherently much easier to break down using enzymes. Um, so you might come across PLA, which is being used a lot for, for example, plastic cups. Um, and then these are all really being now designed for end of life because we're really becoming aware of this plastic problem. Um, in terms of the plastics that we're already using, there are things I think we could do to improve their 
sort of end of life degradability. Um, I, I think what we're more likely to move towards is relying on slightly different types of plastic, which are actually easier to degrade under very specific conditions. So for example, if you shine very strong UV light on them or you expose them to a certain chemical or a certain enzyme, they will degrade very readily, but not, not before, because obviously you don't want your plastic cup to disintegrate as you're, you're drinking your tea. Um, <laughs> That's right. so, Mid midway through it, it degrades while you're halfway through your tea and you're like, well, that didn't yeah. work so well. That's, that's too degradable. As I said, plastics are a really useful material and there's a reason they've been so successful. Um, so we just need to find a way to sort of unite that with uh, sustainability. And I think then we'll be there. Yeah, no, they are definitely, uh, it's a very useful uh, material. And I think, like you said, it's gotten kind of a bad rap probably in the last couple of years due to plastic pollution. But when you look around at what plastic, the benefit that plastic has brought to humanity, I think it definitely outweighs the negatives as long as we can you know, get the negative under control, which I think we can. We just have to be a bit smarter on how we uh, we use and dispose of it. So um, so our final question, we always like to ask all of our guests the egg question because we feel that how someone eats their eggs is a window into their soul. So how do you like your eggs? Scrambled, poached, sunny side up, or however you do it? We've heard all kinds of crazy ways to eat eggs on this show. I'm a bit boring, but poached every time for me. Oh, good. All right. Well, I always share how I find cooking poached eggs the most nerve wracking because my wife likes them, you know, just soft on the inside. And there's like this fine line in chemistry oh. of a poached egg where <laughs> you either end up cooking it too much or it's too soft. Uh, so do you like yours soft in the middle or poached? Yeah, it's got to be it's got to be runny in the middle and well cooked on the outside. But, you know, the challenge of cooking a perfect poached egg is always a bit of excitement in the morning. So, uh... <laughs> <laughs> all right well note to self i don't want to be uh, cooking poached eggs for joe because too much pressure early in the morning um so if people want to learn more about your work uh where is the best place for them to go we can link to this in the uh, podcast post as well yes yeah, so i currently have a um university of edinburgh webpage um, which i can send you a link to i'm currently setting up my own lab um, and website at the moment so i'll be having a, a website go live in the next few months as well i'm also on twitter at joe sadler 10 um, so you, you can follow any, any sort of immediate updates through that. Great. Sounds good. Yeah. If you've got your current website, we will post that. And anyone who's interested in learning more about the work you're doing can head over there. And I learned a lot today about vanillin. Um, I did not know it was synthetic, which is amazing. I don't know if I've watched this, uh, Netflix uh, documentary a while ago about orange juice and how orange juice, they basically suck all the oxygen out of it to store it. And then they reflavor it with, uh, essentially artificial synthetic flavoring. So I'm starting to learn that maybe what I'm eating is not really what I think I'm eating all the time. So, uh, but that's good. More knowledge is power, right? <laughs> yeah, definitely. All right. Thanks very much for tuning in to this episode of Get Better at Garbage. And we will be back next episode with, I believe it's Mr. Trash Wheel, which is uh, again into picking up plastic out of the ocean. So we are going to uh, talk plastic with Mr. Trash Wheel on the next episode. Thanks very much for joining us for this episode, and we will tune in next week. Well, that's a wrap for this episode. Remember, you can recycle past episodes at www.recycle-smart.com forward slash podcast and follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks for joining us, and remember to get better at garbage, rock the recycling, and save some serious dough.